<coughs> don't worry that Joseph has evaporated. Or <laughs> He's a big guy to evaporate. So, but uh, <coughs> some uh, other visitors visitors have arrived at the Bodhi house today. So I think he's looking after some other friends who've just come. So uh, as uh, is our custom during this time, uh, if you have particular questions or things that have come up during the day, particularly in relation to uh, composing your obituaries, epitaphs, or resistance to the same, <laughs> um, or other things that have come up during the, the practice, please uh, feel free to, to ask, bring things up. This is this is the time for you. Yes, Rosila. Um, how important do you think a belief in rebirth is? To me, the attraction of Buddhism has, among other things, been that it is a come and see um, um, uh, religion, one where you do not, where you do not, uh, are not faced with dogmas. Um, I come from a Christian background and um, I found believing in, in, in the creed impossible in the end. And uh, in Buddhism, as I understood it, <coughs> is d it is necessary just to try out what the Buddha advises and see for yourself whether you can take it on board or not. And that to me seems immensely attractive. Um, and I, the, when we talked about bardos yesterday, I found that a bit off-putting. I read uh, um, Sogya Rinpoche's book many, many years ago, and I found a lot in it that I found very helpful. It was at a time when my mother was approaching death. But uh, these, these teachings about bardos and um, so on, I couldn't take on board. Um, and I don't think, I mean, that is not in the Buddhist scriptures even. It is a Tibetan tradition which comes from somewhere else. Um, <coughs> so that is something to me which smacks a bit like pictures of hellfire in Hieronymus Bosch pictures. <laughs> Uh, it's something quite <coughs> grotesque to me. Um, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. But uh, as long as I do not know whether that is actually the fact, I cannot personally believe in anything like that. So um, I'd like to know what you think. To me, Buddhism is mostly a help in life, in this very life. And um, that is enough for me. And Ajahn Shah, you mentioned that, and I found that always a very good guide, always said that everything is uncertain. So the certainty of a belief in an afterlife, to me, smacks of a kind of fundamentalism. Oh, thank you for the, that's a very well articulated question. Um, the um, I feel what you say is absolutely true, and it's it's also interesting that even though Ajahn Chah was a Buddhist teacher, very much embedded in a Buddhist culture that has a an almost automatic um, belief in past lives and future lives, he almost never ever spoke uh, in those terms. Once in a while, occasionally, he makes some sort of um, casual remark, like "Oh, so and so must have had a hundred wives in a past life." You know. Or just as a sort of off-the-cuff remark, you know, well, off-the-robe remark, you know. Um, but uh, he he never made anything of that. And like Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I, I mentioned the other day, he was quite a, a force within the Thai Buddhist world against superstition and the belief in amulets and uh, the the um, somewhat uh, sort of obsessive way that the the um, the culture holds past lives, future lives, and uh, and uh, the um, magical kind of side of things. So um, I have to say, for for myself, 
when I came across, uh, I also couldn't deal with uh, the Apostles' Creed. I, at the age of about seven, I think, at sc- when I was at school, we had to we had to recite that or learn it. You know, I believe in God, the Father, Creator of heaven and earth. I got as far as the first sentence, and I said, yeah, "Sir, <laughs> if you don't believe in God, should you say the words and be lying, or should you not say the words?" So the answer I got was, don't be cheeky. (laughs) So at that point, at the age of seven, I thought, that's stupid. I don't agree with that. Or something along those lines for a seven-year-old Kentish boy. So anyway, but when I came across the idea of past lives, uh, a little bit later actually, not much older than that, um, past lives, future lives, I had an immediate feeling of, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's more like it. Because the idea of coming out of nowhere and then going off to heaven or hell forever seemed completely ridiculous. That just didn't feel right. But the idea of a long succession of, of past lives, future lives, that was just the feeling I had at that, that young age. Ah, oh, that sounds more realistic. Um, one of the most... Uh, Interesting teachings in this regard, again from the Majjhima Nikaya, which is a wonderful, <laughs> uh, uh, phenomenal source of, of wisdom. And this is Sutta number 60 in the Middle Length Discourses. It's called the Apanaka Sutta, which means the incontrovertible teaching. Uh, and it's, uh, if those of you might be familiar with the, in the Christian theology, Pascal's Wager, that um, uh, it was a. Um, Pascal, who was a, a, a um, European philosopher and theologian, reckoned it, you know, his his own logic was that it's better to to believe in God and to live in a good to live a good life because if you if you do, then um, yeah, you're likely to be able to go to heaven, and uh, and if you don't, then you've just um, you know, done a, you've behaved yourself during this life, and and if um, you, uh, you there's no life after this one, well, you haven't wasted that much. But if you're um, if you don't believe in God and you you live a, a reckless life, then if you're going to hell, then you have to pay for a long, long time in a very nasty way. <laughs> so he said, therefore, if you're a gambler, the, the best, the, the wiser wage to make <laughs> is to to live a, a wholesome life. So, two thousand years earlier, <laughs> the Buddha made the same kind of um, uh, let's say observation. And so, in the Apanika Sutta, what he he says is. And it's really quite uh, remarkable because he's completely respectful of uh, the whole range of views of of what might actually be the the case in terms of metaphysics, whether there is a life after this one or lives before or not. He says, uh, this is paraphrasing, um, if you ask me, you know, I say uh, from my experience, there is a life, there, are, there is a life before this one, there are lives after this one. That's my point of view. However, <laughs> it might be that I'm wrong, and so that if, uh, but if there is this good person, and uh, this good person lives an uh, unskillful life, <laughs> and you know he speaks in those kind of terms, this good person, this worthy person lives an unskillful life, so he's even being respectful towards people who are living recklessly. This good person leads leads an unskillful life; they are dishonest and cruel and, and selfish, and they are harmful. Then during this very life, then they are disrespected by wise people. Um, they uh, are they draw uh, unwholesome friends to them. They uh, li- they sleep badly at night. Um, and uh, and then uh, at the end of, of their life, they are likely to be filled with regret. And so, um, uh, if it's the case, then that uh, after this life. There is no life following this one. Even here and now, that good person has made a miserable abiding for themselves. You know, here and now, in this very life. And if there is a life after this one, then it's likely that they've um, set the conditions in place to be heading towards an unpleasant destination. Quote, unquote. <laughs> so similarly, if the, uh, another good person lives a wholesome life, and they are um, the one who uh, is honest and kind, unselfish, and uh, lives according to the moral precepts, then they, they attract wholesome people to them. They are respected by the wise. Uh, they sleep, they tend to sleep easily at night. Uh, 
and um, and then at the end of their life, then uh, they do not have any regrets. And so, if yeah, even if there is no life after this one, and again, his languaging is very much, if there is no life after this one, and completely open to that possibility in the way that he speaks, if there is no life after this one, then, right here and now, this person has made a pleasant abiding for themselves. And it, But if there is a life after this one, then uh, this person has set the conditions in place to be reappearing in a pleasant destination. So that, uh, to me, that's immensely practical. And I, I've, I've quoted that sutta many, many times because I, I feel it's important. And one of the great strengths and the attractions of Buddha Dhamma is that it's an experiential teaching. It doesn't require dogmatic belief. And it's certainly what drew me, well, you know, what... I, I, I was drawn in the gate by the prospect of a free place to stay, but, <laughs> but <what laughs> I was uh, traveling on a shoestring, so uh, the, I knew monasteries were, were free. So, uh, and then uh, I was also very drawn by Joseph's very down-to-earth and straightforward and uh, kind of easy, uh, friendly manner when he was the abbot there. But it was this non-dogmatic quality was extraordinarily attractive. And that uh, the sense of well, it's this is what the teachings say, but it's up to you to to find out whether that's true or not. You, you use it, apply it for yourself, and and see uh, whether that's that's real or not. So I feel that's one of its great strengths, and that um, and this the Apanika Sutta and this this teaching is pointing to um, well, irrespective <laughs> of what the metaphysics are, whether there is a life before this one or after uh, or not. It uh, doesn't really matter. The main thing is how you live your life now. <laughs> and that's in that teaching what he's pointing very directly towards. And so that um, some of us are, are disposed towards the idea of uh, past lives, future lives. Others feel like, well, no. You know, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And uh, I feel it's, it's important that we respect you know, all of those different points of view. I don't have memories or, or sort of, uh, direct sort of psychic abilities to, to read past lives or future lives. Uh, and, uh, but as I said, just to be completely honest, it just made perfect sense to me from about the age of seven or eight when I first heard of that. And uh, so I've never had any, even though I have a scientific training, I, I was mostly, uh, that was my education was in, in sciences and, and logic and reason. Um, it's made perfect sense to me. And uh, you know, I tend to hold it in terms of the law of conservation of consciousness, like the law of conservation of energy. It's like uh, even in, in the realm of, of uh, physics and chemistry, biology, it makes sense to me. That makes perfect sense to me as well. Thank you very much. Welcome back, Joseph. <laughs> Um, uh, I w just wanted to say thank you ab about our homework because when you first said it I thought oh no I haven't really got time to do all this and do other things that I need to do as well and just um, more things to do but when I started writing um, uh, I realised that um, uh, I don't take enough time to be delighted about the things that I do do or have done that are valuable. And it might be like that for other people as well, that when you start, when we start writing about or thinking about um, my life as a whole, um, uh, there are a lot of things that I was quite pleased with. And... <coughs> I think, you know, life is so busy that um, I know that I do things like, like, um, like I do things each year that I find valuable or that I feel that I feel are valuable to others as well. But as soon as I come back, then I, there's something else, <laughs> you know, and there's no time to stop and be delighted with oneself. And not in an egotistical way, but just in a, in a wholesome way. 
So that was very valuable for me to, to, and perhaps it was for other people as well, to notice that, you know, we're okay. <laughs> you know, that, that we, you know, that it's enough. You know, like what, what we've done is actually enough. I was thinking if I, I was thinking in terms of if I died on this retreat or tomorrow, it's actually enough. And then the epitaph, I found that fun because I quite like humorous verse or little snappy things. And I was sort of had a bit of fun making up a few things. And then the other thing is, is that, is that I, I helped write and read out the eulogy for both my mother and my father. So I thought that I'll write, I'll write this out in neat because it's a bit scrappy. And then I'll probably give it to to one of my sons, probably my younger son, because my older son won't want to think about me dying, but the younger son will ca cope with it more. I'll give it to him so he could put it aside and it might be of value at some point in the future. So, Very good. Very good. Well, that, that, as I said earlier today, that, that was exactly one of the things I hoped would come because in the way you put it was we're so busy doing good things, you know, <laughs> sort of coming back from one sort of marvelous, uh, marvelously helpful adventure that helping all sorts of other people. <sighs> okay, what's next? <laughs> you know, we hardly give ourselves those <coughs> fateful three and a half seconds. We sort of plunk ourselves down on the sofa and go, Whoa, home at last. One, two, three. Right. <laughs> Check the email, you know, and then so that that chaganusati is uh, is a very a very important reflection to to reflect on the good that has been done, and uh, so I'm very delighted that that had that effect. That um, <clears throat> last last year, uh, Ajahn Suchito came to IMS in Barry, Mass, about thirty minutes from where Catherine and I live in Massachusetts, and Catherine's been going on the monastic retreat there for the last six or seven, since 2004. And uh, this is the first time I went. I always was around and everything, but I just didn't feel inclined or had things to look on after the, the house or something, and kind of just supported her. And uh, so this I, I went this last year, and it was also, I uh, um, made a nundi from Canada, who spent 10 years here with a lovely uh, Canadian woman. And so it was, a, it was a very special retreat for, for everyone, and I certainly for me, because it had been a while since I'd had the quiet time. But I remember that at one point Ajahn Suchito was, it was in between something, <clears throat> and I think everybody, most people here have heard Ajahn Suchito speak. If you haven't, then I highly recommend it. And, um, but he talked about the art of the pause. And when he said it, I kind of stopped, and then I realized that I've been practicing this art of the pause for, for since I was a, a, a bhikkhu in Thailand. Because it's like, you know, the, the bell rings, like in Thailand at the end of the meditation. You know, the bell would ring, and whether it was Ajahn Chah or his other monks, then there would just be... And it wasn't like maybe the anticipation you were just expecting for me to say the next thing, but there was, there was no need for anticipation. The next thing would be when it happened. So I didn't need to anticipate, well, when is thou, the Ajahn, going to move and we'll get up? And it was the ability to just totally pause and be present without an expectation of what's next. And I think that's a wonderful... Um, and so when he said it, it just kind of welled up in me. It's like, wow, I practiced this art of the pause for all these years. And, and that it's, it's kind of what we do and we can, we can do in, in the context of this, kind of like on a retreat and, and our lifestyle, but uh, it, it, within the monastic context, but much harder when we're in the world, where, when we're busy. And Thich Nhat Hanh, some of his, I don't know if uh, people here have read some of his books, but he has some lovely sayings and things like you get into your car and you're going to go somewhere, but he has sayings like, before I start my car, I know where I'm going. 
So just these little reflections that are immediate, very practical and present, but that just allow you and I to pause for that moment, because the tendency opens or get into it, you know, we got this, you know, and off we go. And, uh, and so the, the, the ability to, and, and so it's the same thing, longer pauses, and then this we're pausing to actually reflect on the, the good things that we do, but just the ability to, to try to pace, and it's so hard because the, the, the rapid pace that we all live in now is, is tremendous, and the, you know, the pressures with, and like I don't have to work, you know, I do, I do work, Catherine works, and, but I don't have a regular job, but still it's so easy to, to be busy with things and in, in, uh, in the world more. And uh, so that's why the monastery is so precious, the opportunity to do this practice and, and realize that. So, so kind of remember the art of the pause, really, that we see it here, but that we can develop in our own ways, because there's, there's nobody usually there's nobody that's, it's not that urgent, but one gets caught up in the urgency of the end, and then that becomes the habit, doesn't it? We get churned about, and, and <laughs> this is kind of an analogy, it's not like, it's, there was a very restless English, uh, young English monk when I was there, Aranyabo was his name, and um, he's still around somewhere, I believe, but, you know, lovely man, but very, very, uh, uh, incredibly restless. And uh, he couldn't. He couldn't sit. It was hard for him to sit still. And uh, so, you know, he wouldn't do walking meditation. He'd kind of do like running meditation, or you know, circumambulate. You know, going around the monastery and just and, and all this incredible energy. And you know, he's going to leave and he's going to stay. And and so, Ajahn Chah one day was sitting, and he and um, you know, he said, "Alanya Bo, Jailon." When look football, you know, they're going to come at day. And I got wing by tongue known. Come on, come at tongue known. I got my day eek, my wing eek. So he says, you're like, you're like, a, you're like a football. And he said, you know, you kind of just start to slow down. Then somebody comes along and gives you a kick. And then you go bouncing along again. It just starts to slow down enough. But then another person comes on, you know, and, and gives it another kick. And the football starts to bounce around. And so he was brilliant with these kind of. Of analogies, so I think you know, it's very easy to get caught up like that, isn't it? To feel like a football, and uh, you know, on a on a you know a football pitch, and and uh, always kind of in in constant movement, and uh, so that's the nature of a football. But you know, the way that we that we don't get kicked about is we take the football, take it off the pitch, and you know, put it away somewhere, <laughs> so we're not getting you know constantly kicked uh, kicked about. Gentleman down here. I would like to come back to the first question about past lives and future lives. Uh, the Buddha escaped the answer in the Apanaka Sutta. He didn't say one, one way or the other. But there are many other suttas in which he is very outspoken and talks about past and future lives. And um, he talks about it after dissolution of the body, which is quite clear then what he means. It's not in this moment, birth and rebirth. It's after dissolution of the body. Some modern Western teachers explain this by saying, these are metaphors. Don't take it literally. This is not what the Buddha meant. Another explanation is the Buddha spoke in different ways to different audiences. When he was speaking to a Hindu audience who believe in rebirth, he didn't want to attack this belief, so he used it to explain his teaching about the way they should live. I would like to get your view on this. Uh, well, as I did mention, in, in the in the Apanika Sutta, the Buddha prefaces it by saying, you know, if you ask me, 
I say that there are indeed past lives and future lives. That's how he, he uh, the statement that he makes within that. And, and I, I feel that um, that uh, there's um, a, a huge amount, uh, as I said, if, if you count it up just in the middle-length discourses, you know, out of the 50, uh, 152 discourses, uh, more than 50 of them speak very uh, openly and, and easily and frankly about past lives, future lives, other realms of existence. It's not just a sort of a little interpolation into the teaching. You know, that's, um, it's it's woven in throughout, you know, throughout the canon, and so that to me that the those uh, mostly modern Western commentators who say, oh, you know, it, it's metaphorical, or he didn't really mean that. I think it's it's they're trying to get the Buddha to say what they would like him to say, because <laughs> so, it doesn't fit their own particular worldview. So. Quite honest, I mean, these are good people. I know many of them. <laughs> We're good friends, and uh, but uh, I, I feel there's a um, there's a, a sort of putting words into the Buddha's mouth, that wanting him to to say things that they would prefer him to say, and wanting to, him to have not said things that they don't like, that they feel uncomfortable with. And I, I've sat down, good friends of mine have um, literally just sat down, looked me in the face, and said, "You don't really believe in all of that stuff, do you?" I mean, <laughs> really, I mean. I mean, come on. And uh, so as absolutely matter of fact, they can't, the, the mind edits out all of that from the teachings. So to me, I don't feel he was being metaphorical in the slightest. He was talking about his own um, previous uh, experiences of existence um, over and over and over again. The, the Jataka stories, I would say, are indeed fanciful. They're like a, a collection of fables and, and uh, instructional tales, you know, like, like um, uh, you know, uh, see, moral instruction for, for, for um, the, the society, so that uh, I wouldn't say that you know, what you find in the Jataka stories is all 100% guaranteed. But the process of, uh, of rebirth, as he describes, and the succession of, of one life leading to another, it's, it's so uh, embedded in the teaching. Uh, I think it's ridiculous. You know, it's quite plainly absurd to assert that it's just an interpolation that got um, woven in by the Brahmin scholars later on or mm. such like. To me, that's my, my gut feeling. Um, as I said, I, I've always felt comfortable with that. So I can, with the idea of past lives and future lives, and so I, I confess that my own opinion might be biased, but trying to look at it with as, a, as clear and, and uncluttered an eye as possible I, when, and I've read some of the, these commentaries that, that, that uh, these good people make, and you think, how do you get there? <laughs> you know, how much editing do you have to do? You know, how far do you have to go into the text to sort of chop, 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 chop? And um, it's, it's, to me, it's, um, uh, in a way, just, it's reflecting their own particular disposition, their own preferred version of reality, and that, um, uh, yeah, I, I hold it in that way. Thank you. There's a, a, another really important point that I haven't said in the context of this retreat, but I like to preface things, and, and I'll do that now. <clears throat> and as a Buddhist, and I'll just kind of make a, a loose assumption, and as Buddhists sitting here, it's there. Everyone uh, quotes the Buddha. It's like I now in America. I'm around and hear these different teachers and Ajahn Chah this and Ajahn Chah that, and I never come up and say, "Well, were you there?" But we can say when we quote the Buddha, and I like to say, "Well, I wasn't there, so I don't know." And so everyone is fond to say, "Well, the Buddha said this and the Buddha said that, and he, this is what he meant, and this is what he didn't mean," and so that interpretation. And what I love about the scriptures is they always start usually, thus have I heard. And I think that's a good way to always preface our statements about these scriptural sources. Because, that, and that was the oral tradition as I understand that that's how, the, this is what I heard and it was handed down. And that's why it can be and so... speaking at the first council. Yeah, the, so that's, and, and so there's that, so the, the, there's this, it was this verbal tradition up to a certain, certain point. But just think about, just say, 
what we have now, say maybe, I don't know if politics is a good example, say but just between one president and the next, or one prime minister and the next, and just keeping track of a short time span and how that gets into controversy about what was said, what wasn't said, what was written down, and so on, and how um, uh, distorted it can become. So, and, and, and so I'm not arguing that, well, you know, this is all a bunch of hooey, this, you know, these scriptural sources and things, but what I am saying, and, and I think is very important, certainly very important for me, is that, is that one, because these teachings, it's like we've been talking, like they, 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 the attributes of Dhamma, you know, to be experienced individually by the wise, and then, and only then, I believe, is when you and I can actually know. And so I, I, I really am very much... Um, kind of with Ajahn Amaro, because I, I just feel it in my guts. It's like, from the first Buddhist text I read, it's like, man, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he's too right not to be right. But that was my feeling, you know, and that was just me. You know, that, that was it, just a kind of a, you know, a rarity. And, and in fact, I w it was so, I was so getting high at the time, you know, smoking marijuana in, in Bangkok when I first went there, but I got these Buddhist books. And it, cut, it literally blew my mind. I had this, this book, and I read this thing about this great teacher, and I, wow, I can't handle this. It's like, I had to put it down. You know, like I just started like spinning out of control. And I didn't do as many drugs as you might think. So. <laughs> just because I've used two drug examples, you know, in the snapshot of a 64-year-old 60, life. So. But so I think that's so incredibly I I important in, in, in all seriousness, and, and, and that's what I love about that. And so... Uh, I always try to preface, uh, I don't know what the Buddha said, and, and I don't believe anybody does, but we have fairly reliable sources. And as, you know, Ajahn Amaro, myself, you know, and, and others have been part of a tradition that seems to be relatively unbroken. I mean, it, I think it's one of the most reliable, but still it's not, uh, if, if we take just the simplest teachings of like, don't believe what I say, or because the teacher said so, or because it's, the, it's rumored, or what scholars say, or whatever, but only when and only when you, for yourself, you know, realize that. And, but I, 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 too, find that just incredible to, to kind of dismiss something that uh, uh, seems, for one who practices uh, and, and really reflects, it's like, how, how else could it could it be? It makes so much sense. I mean, here we are, a snapshot. You know, we're kind of like, a, uh, you know, it's like one breath, isn't it? A lifetime is like, you know, one breath in another sense, and how quickly uh, it arises and passes away. So we only have this snapshot, and so everybody wants to know, well, well before I took the snapshot that's kind of frozen in time, uh, we don't have the relation. If I just, you know, you get a snapshot and you don't, you haven't met me. Say, well, this is Joseph Kappel. Who's that? Oh, is that that guy that was a monk and he taught once with Arjun Amaro? Yeah, yeah, that's him. So they get a snapshot. So they get a picture, but they have no idea of what preceded the picture, and they have no idea what's happened since the picture. So that's kind of our human life, isn't it? We have, we're kind of have this snapshot of life from a very limited perspective. And we can make incredible assumptions about, well, what has happened and what's going to happen. And, and, and that's, that's all they are. But that's why we're, you know, we turn inwardly. We look inwardly to, to begin to make sense of, 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 of oh, all right, that's, that's reasonable. To me, I'm like, well, I, I, past lives have always made sense before I even came to Buddhism. I just thought, wow, that's pretty wild. It was just one of the, uh, early on a girlfriend that I had and she'd mentioned I was at Rosicrucians I think they believe in reincarnation and I'd never even heard it before and I said wow that's I, it was just like it made sense to me I never heard anything and so I think for many of us it is the case it's like what else can I explain or you know karma cause and effect and all of that so um, that's kind of my two pence worth one, one thing to, to go back to uh, on this issue to go back to Ajahn Buddhadasa because he was even more extreme than Ajahn Chah in that he, he was, was very sort of dismissive about past lives and future lives and that whole thing. He was very forthright. And, uh, and I was... Um, uh, there, there was a, 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 a young monk in our community who went to go and visit him uh, who had you know, very strong um, sort of intuitions and experiences about past lives and future lives. And so this was 
And he had a lot of respect for Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and so it puzzled him, like, how can he talk like that? You know, can he really be editing out all that stuff from the scriptures and also going against what, you know, what seems to be so real and normal and true to me? So he went and asked Ajahn Buddha Dasa. Um, and um, I, uh, I'm trying to remember whether I was there at the time, but I, I can't recall. But uh, uh, if I was actually, because I visited Suan Mok Monastery once uh, for a couple of weeks, and I believe I was there when he asked the question, but I'm not absolutely certain. Anyway, he, he uh, asked Ajahn Buddha Dasa straight out. So, uh, you know, Venerable Sir, you know, there are all these references in the scriptures, uh, and, uh, and the Buddha talks about this in a very matter-of-fact way, and yet you very um, pointedly you know, put that all aside, or you say that that's not important or significant, and, and you, you play it right down. So... Um, are you saying that the that the what's there in the scriptures you know, isn't real, uh, or that that's 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 incorrect? And Ajahn Buddha Dasa said, "No, I'm not saying that." But because the strength of the culture, the the folk belief is so strong, it's so uh, and it's so thoroughly grasped <laughs> and believed in, he says that I uh, to me it's uh, it becomes a, an obstacle to liberation. Mm. And so, therefore, I I steer things. I lean heavily in the other direction to create a counterpoint. Um, and it, and it was because that monk was so sincere, and he wasn't trying to argue. He was just like, "Can you help me understand this?" And it was because of his openness and his sincerity. It was that was a Tanavaro, the Italian, ah, yeah, the Italian yeah. Tanavaro. So he was so sincere and so. Um, Straightforward that Buddha Dasa, and it's the one I think one of the very few instances that Ajahn Buddha Dasa actually did <laughs> say that, and so that he um, he was saying that he was just trying to make a point to counterbalance the the clinging, and it, and and that's the other part of this is that it, that clinging to views like uh, the like those last four lines of the um, uh, of the uh, Metta Sutta, by not holding to fixed views, Ditincha an, uh, Anupagamma Silavadasanena, not holding to fixed views, not clinging to views. You know, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is not born again. So, even if your views can really be backed up with you know serious information <laughs> and logic and data and uh, quotations. If you cling to those views, that, that clinging is going to be an ob obstruction. So if you cling to an irrational belief in rebirth, if you cling to a, an irrational disbelief in rebirth, the, uh, that clinging is going to be a, a, an obstacle to, to liberation. And that, I feel, particularly Lumpur Sumedho, Lumpur Cha, uh, speak very beautifully and directly. So look at what you're clinging to. Yeah, look, look where, where the clinging is, and uh, irrespective of what your your background might be, where the clinging is, that's where you need to let go. But just tell a, a little, another little Ajahn Chah story. So, Ajahn Sumedho went back to visit for the first time in 1981 after he opened the monastery in England, and uh, Ajahn Chandasiri, who, well, who's now Ajahn Chandasiri, was <coughs> fairly newly ordained as a nun at that time. He he took her along with it and a group of about 20 other, 20 lay people. And he'd been talking about how there was this wonderful American nun at Wat Bapong. You know, she'd been a very dedicated disciple, been ordained for five years. She was a great example. She could help to show you how to set things up for the nuns community in England. Yada, 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 as they say in the States. <laughs> so they get to the to uh, to Thailand, and they find that uh, Mechi Kampha has become a born-again Christian. <laughs> American nun had been converted to uh, born-again Christianity by an American missionary <coughs> in Ubon. So, uh, cut a long story short, Ajahn Sumedho had a long session with, uh, with uh, Sister Kumfar and her, uh, her husband, who was a monk. Um, they, were, they separated out of their ordination. But, uh, so, her husband, Titapa, was a monk and she was a nun. And um, they'd been both ordained for about five years. Lumpur Sumedha had like a two or three hour session with them. <laughs> and then uh, I mean, couldn't make any impression on their uh, ardor for the Christian way. So then uh, he went to go and see Lumpur Cha and said, 
I can't believe it. They've been practicing with you for so long. It's, it's totally ridiculous. It's absurd. It's this really stupid kind of Christianity. It's not even good Christianity. It's this really dumb fundamental yada, 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 yada. So he's venting his spleen to letting Lumpur Chah know how, how foolish and idiotic and, and off the track these two good people seem to be. And then when he pauses for breath, Lumpur says, maybe they're right. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the way Lumpur Sameda looks, he says, he's kidding. <laughs> he's not kidding. He, he must be kidding. He's, he's not kidding. And uh, Ajahn Chah's face could put on several different expressions simultaneously. So. But that's why he would say, look, Sameda, you're clinging to your view about Christianity being stupid and wrong. Look, look, that's where the clinging is. That's why you need to let go. <laughs> yes. Mike? Mike? Who has the mic? Where's Mike? Yes, you. Oh, the mic's coming. It's coming. Mike's coming. He's the chosen. You're the chosen one. Oh, wow. <coughs> Buddhism seems to talk, speak in terms of uh, otherworldly transcendence, and I just wondered how essential. I mean, in terms of going for refuge to that, uh, to seeing things the way they truly are, which suggests a kind of transcendence in it. I'm not. Sure, I mean, I'm not that. But I'm just wondering how essential is the belief in rebirth in terms of going hmm. for refuge. Uh, you know, if you're just confining it to this world, it's as Stephen Batchelor seems to have kind of leant towards, a kind of a materialism. And I just wondered, I mean, can you truly be a Buddhist in the traditional sense with that going for refuge to a kind of a transcendence, which, you know, in a way it seems to be uh, rebirth is part of. Hmm. Is, uh, is, that, is that clear? Well, I would, I would tease apart the, I, the idea of rebirth and, and the quality of transcendence. But I, wouldn't, I say they're, they're not the same thing. Mm. So uh, with Stephen Batchelor, who's a, a good friend, actually I, I have plans to go to uh, walk around Mount, Mount Kailash with him next year. Should be a very, very interesting trip. Mm. <laughs> Walking around the abode of Shiva with, uh, with Stephen Batchelor. But... Uh, the, um, I, I've even been with the Dalai Lama at one of these sort of, uh, 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 teaching events where with a, a, literally a whole bank of about 30 reincarnate lamas or 30 Rinpoches sort of sitting on, in rows beside him and coming up with this um, uh, issue about rebirth and him literally, the Dalai Lama literally turning around, you know, the 14th Dalai Lama you know, in his succession of rebirths saying, <coughs> you don't have to believe in rebirth to be a Buddhist, do you? And all the Rinpoches were... <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a very wonderful moment. Because it, it was a very artless and straightforward question for the Dalai Lama. But for the, the, all the Lamas that were sitting there, it's like... <laughs> for them, it was kind of undermining the whole of Tibetan, sort of Tibetan Buddhist edifice. But here's the, the head of their entire order and their community saying, this isn't, you know, believing in this isn't essential for taking refuge, for being a Buddhist. So I would say that to take refuge, essentially, as um, was mentioned earlier in the week, is to do with choosing to be awake. To take refuge in the Buddha is to say, I, I choose to, to incline towards wakefulness rather than being asleep. To take refuge in Dhamma is, I choose to, to uh, take refuge in the way things are rather than, than in my ideas about how they should be, how they could be, how they might have been. But the way reality actually is, to attune my life to that refuge in Sangha, is not just a matter of respecting enlightened beings, but uh, it's more to do with choosing to live <coughs> unselfishly, choosing to live uh, in, uh, with a heart in accord with, with virtue. So that's a here and now teaching, that's a Sanditiko teaching. So that whether you happen to believe in, in rebirth in, in terms of metaphysics, like past lives and future lives, I'd say it's not essential. What you do need in terms of taking refuge is to, uh, uh, 
to recognize the, the reality of the law of cause and effect. That is part of it here in this very life, that the law of cause and effect as we experience it and know it. That is a part of, say, being a Buddhist or taking mm -hmm. refuge or, or uh, practicing. That, that, but that's not necessarily to, uh, something that has to be seen across lifetimes, but more how we see cause and effect, that inexorable law functioning in our lifetimes in moment-to-moment -moment experience. So I'd say that that is an essential um, as a, a part of, uh, of that uh, that's a process of taking <coughs> refuge, but um, whether or not you like the idea of past lives or future lives, that's I would say that that's not an essential thing. Yeah, they talk about coming to the the Dhamma, the teachings, like there's eighty four thousand uh, Dharma doors, and and I think that sounds very limited, actually, from my experience. I think there's countless Dharma doors, <clears throat> but. What 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 I would would um, like to illuminate is that most of us here, not not the certainly Western people, uh, European and um, uh, uh, American, North American, whatever, that we have the strong influence of a theistic tradition, and theistic traditions are so based in faith, aren't they, in belief. So the, the foundation, and many of us are here because of these foundations that we're asked or forced or compelled or, you know, kicked into that we have to believe something. And what I found so beautiful about Buddhist teachings, and I never, I mean, I embraced Christianity, but very loosely, it didn't really speak to me, and, and Buddhism did, because it wasn't, it wasn't asking me to come through a door of faith. It was really, it was really a, a kind of more of a, a cause and effect door that, like Ajahn is saying. So, and it was invitational. <clears throat> it's like a buffet. You know, here's all this lovely food. Help yourself. But there wasn't somebody at every dish and like try this and trying to push that particular dish on me. You know, taste this one, taste that one. You know, and shove it down my throat. But that very thing. Think about it. That's, then that's the cause of a rising of an element of faith. Because, but it's, just, it's, a diff, it's shifting the whole thing. And so in Buddhism, we don't, we don't really start from that point of, of that before I can take the precepts, before I can go on a meditation, before I can go to Amarwati, before, 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 that I have to like have A, B, and C in place. You know, first you have to kind of think about rebirth. I know it's a little much, but that's what we believe around here. And, uh, you know, and the senior monk, he's like talking about all these times, you know, when he was a frog and he was a, you know, a, a magpie and, and, you know, and all these things. And, 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 and they're already, you know, turning around and, and leaving. But that's not what we do. We invite, you know, we invite. The invitation is like, you know, ehi pasiko, inviting inviting to come and see for oneself and so that's but that is the faith door isn't it because with that very thing it's like oh wow so we kind of step in a little further so that there's kind of still a seductive element and i came with, up with an analogy years ago and i thought about it earlier so we have two kind of students you know on the path of spiritual enlightenment you know they're kind of searching so they're both near this precipice and so the one on the right here, this one here, is following the Christian or more theistic tradition, and this one here is more the Buddhist tradition. So they're walking along, and they come to this precipice, a bit like the story I told older, earlier, and but my own analogy, <clears throat> and you know, and Christ comes along and says, "Jump, my son," you know. So the person just goes forward and jumps, you know, nothing, no reservation whatsoever. You know, we call that blind faith. So the Buddhist disciple comes up to the cliff and the Buddha says the same thing. He says, jump, but contemplate it first. But you still have to jump. <laughs> so, so it doesn't really matter which the, 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 the end of, of, of being able to let go and to make that leap of trust that we're, we're, we're required at some point to start, to, and, and that's what pushes us. But it's never, certainly it's never felt for me in this tradition or any other tradition that there's things that are kind of um, uh, um, 
forced upon me to that I have to have this prerequisite before I can start this, and that and that's a really, you know, important point. So I kind of hear that kind of well, do I have to believe this and I have to believe that, and and it's really we believe and I, I mean we all not believe but we all experience suffering. So that's the door, isn't it? We want to be free from this 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 uh, existence because there's some discontent. In there, and that's what brings most people. And, and there's that psychological approach that is there, and so that's attractive to the Western mind. And then I think there's just this whole kind of almost a—I don't think it's a movement, but a turning away from having been. I know the Buddha comes to Sussex that a lot of people were talking about that tired of hearing the kind of like, well, this happened and that happened, and and more kind of uh, an embedded. Uh, tradition that says, well, here, here's how you start, and here's how you have to do it, and, and that this is kind of a fresh, uh, a fresh view on, on, on life and how to approach uh, the, the dilemmas that we have as human beings. Maybe, maybe just to finish with one, uh, a few words about transcendence, uh, because that, that is, uh, in, in essence, um, the, uh, the aim of the Buddha's teaching is to transcend suffering and then realizing that transcendent Dhamma that we were talking about, the Akaliko Dhamma, the timeless Dhamma. Um, and so that these, uh, this quality of transcendence, and I understand that people like Stephen Batchelor are very somewhat allergic to concepts like transcendence or, or um, the, the, uh, the unborn, the unoriginated and so on. They, uh, th those are unpopular or unappealing. But um, that one of the um, important insights is that it's because there is that dimension of, I would su suggest, <laughs> that because there is that dimension of our being which is intrinsically transcendent, which is timeless, which is um, say unborn, undying, because that's, that is a part of our nature, um, then that means liberation is possible. If it were not the case, then liberation would not be possible. And this was one of the key insights when Ajahn Chah met his teacher, Ajahn Man. He was only together with him for three days. He only spent three days in the company of his teacher. But this was the, the main insight that he learned from, or, or was triggered in him from listening to Venerable Ajahn Man was that he pointed out that the, the mind which is aware and its objects are, are separate things like oil and water. That when our lives are confused and agitated, like oil and water are shaken up together, they seem to be one thing. When you put the bottle down, they separate out. It's because the, that which is aware is intrinsically separate and transcendent of that uh, that which is known. Then that means liberation is possible. And this is what insight meditation, developing that quality of wisdom and awareness, so that it's all in the same bottle. It's all <laughs> it's all happening within our in our own experience. But because that, that quality of, of awareness uh, is intrinsically uh, separate from or unconfused or un, uh, uh, untainted by any object, pleasant or painful, beautiful or ugly, uh, born or dying, because it's, it's timeless and, and because it um, uh, has that, say, uh, inviolable quality, then that means that, that freedom can be possible. And that if the, that which is aware and that which is knowing was intrinsically bound up with the known and the born and the dying, then yeah, freedom would be impossible. And this sounds like a bit of a, a kind of sweeping, sweeping statement, but that's how Ajahn Chah articulated it from what he learned from Ajahn Man. He realized, oh, that's how it works. So that transcendence is not sort of off in the heavens or some sort of super-duper parinibbana realm <laughs> off the other side of the sky. It's this very heart of ours that knows this moment, not even once this Q&A is finished, <laughs> we can go and have a cup of tea and look at the sky. It's this moment right now, the mind that's aware of this conversation, hearing these sounds, that that, that quality of transcendence <coughs> is uh, that aspect of our own being which is you know, fully, um, fully present and, and, f and totally unentangled and unconfused by by the, the patterning of things here in the present moment. So that's why I said that transcendence is not so connected with the ideas of past lives or future lives, but in a way it's the, it's the sort of the, the essential point of, uh, of Dhamma teaching. Like this last small one. 
Yes, something in us is um, unborn and it's deathless. Yeah, and you also say that uh, rebirth is possible. What in us that is reborn? Nah. And one more thing is uh, when you when you when people talk or when I've read about regression techniques and they say that I've known the past life and there is a recordicle of past life. So they say that I've, I've born in uh, um, in New York in this time in this. So they they give all the practical futures that they have gone through. Mm-hmm. So that means there is a point of intellectual imprint in that person who has actually reborn. So is it a part of intellect? Can you just edify on that, please? I can give you a, a one-word answer. <laughs> so that the uh, what gets reborn is habits. Habits. It's not a person that's reborn. It's just what's loved, what's hated, what's familiar. Like the, the little kid with the kite. There's a memory. It's <laughs> more than memory. It's, it's all the different kinds of habits. But anyway, uh, it's now getting towards 5.15. May I, Venerable Sir? <laughs> the analogy of the candle. I've always loved this. And I, I, I think this, this works uh, the best for me, and I think an explanation, and and that that there is what is it that is reborn, and so there are there are conditions. There has to be conditions. So in the conditioned world, the conditions kind of uh, 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 um, inform, continue to have more conditions. So there needs to be a fuel for those conditions. So the best analogy I've ever heard. This is almost burnt out here. This little. Um, this kind of this candle, but uh, it it is this is this flame begins to uh, burn out, and that last moment before all of the fuel is gone, then the next candle is relit. This one dies, and this one now has full, full, has fuel to keep on burning. But we know that if we keep this, if we keep this unattended, this is dangerous because it will burn down, could burn other things. But that eventually, the wax will uh, run out, and then the next candle could come along as that was running out. And there's two questions, really, or two two contemplations, as I see it: Is this flame? What is it? What is it that's reborn from flame to flame? And one could argue it's just conditions. There's continued conditions for it. And so as long as there's the wax the conditions for the flame to continue, then there will continue to be the flame. So Nibbana, or Nirvana, it was used as, as cooling or exa- exhausting, as I understand the word. So it's like for they would say, use it more commonly, that something has been exhausted or, or cooled down. And so if, we, if it's the fire of greed, of hatred and delusion, when that fire is cooled, there's no longer conditions. And so there's kind of just, they're just, just is, and and so I've always found that a lovely analogy to to contemplate the, the the kind of the candle because I think everybody can grasp that that there's conditions in this candle and the flame, and it's not one in this in the same, and yet there is this continuation. We can't really argue. We can talk about elements and argue scientifically what actually that is, but on a simple level, it it, it it's always made sense to me and been one of the good ways to describe that. Another comment. The, it's very intriguing that the word for clinging, upadana, and the word for fuel, upadana, is exactly the same word. Mm. The fuel for a fire and the word for clinging, it's the same word. It's not like different words that are spelt the same. It's the same word. So that which sub, uh, is the substance that, that, that provides the fuel for a, the candle to keep burning, that is clinging. The clue is very large. <laughs> And that uh, the, uh, when uh, the Buddha was asked by Vachagota, what, what is it that sustain between one birth and the next, what is it that sustains a being? The Buddha said, Tanupadana, the clinging and craving. That's what sustains. Like a, he said, like a, when there's a forest fire and the flame leaps from one tree to another, what sustains it is the, uh, the air, the, the oxygen in the air. That, uh, he said that. What sustains a being from one birth to the next is the, the attribute of clinging, tanupadana. Many 
Well, sankara just means thing. It, it, yeah, it's it's a a word of many many broad meaning, uh, very broad meanings. It, so it it's um, the habits of attachment. So yeah, 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 force of habit. So that the uh, fire, when it's burning, was like the fire element is considered to be agitated in, and and in a state of entrapment. When the fire goes out, rather than being a symbol of death, it's a symbol of the fire element being released. It's no longer entrapped. So that the going out of a fire is not a, a symbol of death, but a, a symbol of liberation. The tea, the tea has already been put away. It's already been put away, so we're good. that could be said about this. <laughs> yeah. says, as long as space remains, as long as living beings remain, so too shall I remain to relieve the sufferings of the world. Mm -hmm. so, that's one of the, uh, the verses of Shantideva. Um, however, if you look at that, and you also reflect on the nature of self-view, as long as space remains, as long as living beings remain, so too shall I remain to relieve the sufferings of the world. So if space is let go of, if living beings are let go of, then I am let go of as well. <laughs> do, you understand, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? So, when he says, uh, as long as space remains, as long as living beings remain, so too shall I remain to relieve the sufferings of the world. So, that's a, a, uh, it's one of the verses from Shantideva's Bodhisattva Charyavatara, the verses on the life of a, of a Bodhisattva. So then that might think, well, it's going to be a long time. <laughs> you know, space is going to be here for a long time. Living beings are going to be here for a long time. But if you look at and contemplate, what is the nature of a, li a living being? Arise and pass away. Yeah. Well, that uh, also that the mind create we create each other. We create space. We create form. That the, those things <coughs> are imputed into existence. We determine them into existence. And that again, this, this is these are sweeping statements. But uh, it's like Ajahn Chah would say that you know something like a yeah, we call this a clock. We designate it into existence. We, we we all call it clock, so therefore it's a clock. But it's not a clock from its own side. It is just what it is. Its clockness is imputed by the way that we look at it, the way we hold it. If all the people leave, leave the room, clockness goes. Because we're here and we look at it and I hold it up and we say, clock. <laughs> or this chair. This chair was made for when Ajahn Mahabur, this was the translator's chair for when Ajahn Mahabur visited London in 1974. Before that, it was tree. Several trees, probably. <laughs> then it got to be Tanbanyuwada's chair. And then they went back to Thailand, and then it was Ajahn Sumedho's chair when Ajahn Chah came to visit Hampstead. And then, and then, and then, and then. Many different incarnations. Now it's the chair from Maikuti. Or it was the chair from Maikuti. Now it's the chair in the shrine room at the retreat center. <laughs> So its chairness and its story are here because of what we, we give to it. 
how we impute that, what we impute to it. So, when we say, as long as space remains, as long as living beings remain, so too shall I remain. So, if we hold that in terms of self-view, I am a person who is around, who has been born, who will be born many times over, and there's lots of living beings out there who need help. That's seeing the universe in terms of self-view. Me here, you there. There's, there's this being and there's other beings as concrete separate realities. When the universe, uh, the reality of things is not seen in terms of self-view, when we let go of self, let go of other, as it says in the Vajra Sutra, living beings, living beings, why are they called living beings? They're called living beings because they're not living beings. That's why they're called living beings. <coughs> so uh, it might be befuddling, but what it's doing is trying to help us to loosen our grip on the way that we hold the world. So the, to me, the Bodhisattva vows are a, a skillful means to help encourage generosity. But it's also the case that the Bodhisattva vows were founded on the Four Noble Truths. So that they originate from as like a, extending the Four Noble Truths to encompass all beings. So just as the, the Bodhisattva vows say, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. So there is Dukkha. It's a, it's a, the, and this is not just my theory, this is, this is a you know, sort of historically attested understanding of how they arose. So, uh, afflictions are limitless, I vow to cut them all off. So, a desire is the cause of suffering. The, um, the, uh, the Buddha way is supreme, I vow to accomplish it. Suffering uh, can end. There is the cessation of suffering. Um, the way leading out of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. The Dharma doors are endless, I vow to enter them all. So each of the four Bodhisattva vows are a deliberate extension of the Four Noble Truths, as if to say, hey, don't forget, this doesn't just apply to this one life, this applies to all lives. So it was a way of encouraging a greater quality of, of, uh, of say, expansiveness of view in terms of relating to the practice. So if we grasp the Bodhisattva vows in terms of self-view, then it's going to be a long, long wait, because the last blade of grass, there's a lot of grass out there, you know, just at Amravati. <laughs> So it's rather than taking it um, just in terms of, uh, of sort of mechanistic thinking and, and self-view, it's a, it's a skillful means to help you know, expand our limited horizons. And so that, but uh, it's, if we hold it um, as both being, yes, it's important, and yes, until the last blade of grass, you know, is, is enlightened, or t as long as space remains, as long as living beings remain, so too will I remain. But if let living beings are let go of, if space is let go of, if I am let go of, then the whole deal is finished. <laughs> and on that note, I would suggest it's time for tea. Oh.